I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio vs. the Martians. Books have always been my first real love. I can honestly say that I love comic books more than most of the human beings I've ever met. From the time I was eight years old until today, nearly 30 years later, I believe that comic books are the coolest, most interesting, most experimental, strangest, and most versatile storytelling medium around. I fell into comic book fandom the same way that a lot of people did through the four-color adventures of superheroes like the X-Men and Green Lantern. But what made me love the comic book medium was the Vertigo imprint of DC Comics. Vertigo titles didn't look or feel like the superhero comic books that I had been reading or seeing on the stand since childhood. They often had weird and beautiful painted covers by artists like Dave McKeon or Glenn Fabry, and when you looked inside, there was nary a cape or mask to be found. When veteran editor Karen Berger launched the Vertigo imprint in 1993, she was merely canonizing a trend that she had cultivated for years in the publishing line of DC Comics. A series of sophisticated and mature comic book titles aimed at an adult audience, and breaking ranks from the near monopoly that superheroes had held over the medium for decades. Beginning with her tenure as the editor of Alan Moore's groundbreaking work on Swamp Thing in the mid-1980s, Berger orchestrated a comic book British invasion and introduced writers like Grant Morrison, Peter Milligan, Jamie Delano, and Neil Gaiman to an American audience for the first time. This led to an explosion of critically acclaimed, groundbreaking, and even controversial titles that are still finding new readers today, decades after they were first published. Vertigo was giving writers and artists free license to reinvent often obscure ancillary DC characters like Animal Man, Kid Eternity, Shade the Changing Man, and the Doom Patrol in idiosyncratic and thought-provoking ways. For over 25 years, the backbone of the Vertigo line was a comic book about the exploits of con artist and sorcerer John Constantine in Hellblazer, a title that launched countless careers in the industry. But the imprint's true juggernaut was Sandman, Neil Gaiman's 75-issue masterpiece about the ageless anthropomorphic Lord of Dreams, returning to his realm after decades of imprisonment. Sandman was more than just a simple fantasy story. It broadened the horizons for what people's expectations of what a comic book story could be, and opened up the medium to an entirely new audience of readers, many of them young women who had previously never had any reason to pick up a comic book before, and elevated Gaiman himself into an iconic and popular literary figure. From this success, Vertigo launched creator-centered titles with wholly original characters and self-contained stories that ranged from violent and gritty crime drama like Azzarello and Riso's 100 Bullets to a cyberpunk celebration of gonzo journalism and political agitators in Ellison Robertson's Transmetropolitan. But the series that made me love Vertigo 
was Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon's Preacher, a profane and rollicking fantasy horror western about a hard-drinking West Texas minister who merges with an omnipotent force and is joined on a road trip with his assassin ex-girlfriend and an Irish vampire on a literal search for God who may be hiding on Earth. A potpourri of violence, sex, and blasphemy, Preacher was like a brick through the front window of my 19-year-old brain. It married an anarchic vulgarity to a surprisingly mature and sincere emotional core, and showed me that comic books weren't just about people in bright spandex punching each other. It was in the words of the great Obi-Wan Kenobi, my first steps into a larger world. So let's meet our panel. He's first, uh, he's a returning panelist and one of the hosts of the View from the Gutters comic book podcast. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Joe Preddy. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited. And joining us for the first time on the show, she's a contributor also to View from the Gutters as a librarian and skeleton aficionado. Good to have you here, Kit DeForge. I think I'm here, and I think I enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, the Matthew the Raven to my Morpheus, the Chaz to my John Constantine, Mr. Casey Doran. Hi, Mike. Good to have you here, Casey. I'm glad to be here. So, Kit, I want to start this first question with you, but I want to hear from everyone on this front. Where did you first encounter Vertigo Comics, and what do they mean to you? Um, In my particular case, um, I was in college, and I was working at my first job, which was a Walden Books. Um, Ooh, nice. Yeah. Don't exist anymore. Yeah, I I miss it sorely. Um, (laughs) And being as I was the only person under the age of 40 that was working there, and my major was painting and illustration, Mm -hmm. they said, oh, there are some books here that have stuff other than words in them, and we're frightened. (laughs) Um, Sometimes there are pictures. We don't know what to do with them. (laughs) Please help. So I I was shelving. I was in charge of that section of shelving. And... um, Although I had had some uh, mild affection for Neil's work just on the periphery of learning my young gothhood, um, <laughs> I had never read Sandman. And I am one of those uh, women of mention from earlier where um, there had been a long break between myself and comic books. I had a, a next-door neighbor who was a young delinquent who used to lend me comics um, for a dollar a stack. And as the stacks got higher and the prices got lower, um, I found a person who was willing to encourage my interest in comic books. But mostly it was things like the shoulder pads of mention. Um, the hairier, the uh, more cigarier, the more likely I was to read it. So there was a lot of Wolverine, a lot of Lobo, things like that. Um, but growing up in a conservative home meant that I had to hide them in the uh, porno shoebox of shame. Um, but between that and an art teacher who was uh, raising me as a baby bat in, uh, in high school, I had heard Neil's name. When I was at work and put in charge of the graphic novel section, I was running across book after book of things from the Vertigo line going, oh, look at this cover. Oh, look at that. Oh, that's amazing. And my major centered mostly around uh, collage mixed media. Oh. And hmm. so it was Dave's work on Sandman that just lit a fire in the brain that couldn't be put out. And we had an excellent 33% off working at uh, Walden Books that led me to go, okay, I can pick up this $20 book. I'm used to picking up manga at this stage in my life. Um, so it made it cheap enough for me to go, well, if I don't like it, it's not going to hurt too much. 
sooner rather than later, I was getting to the point that my paycheck covered my gas <laughs> and my uh, stack of books every payday. So that was my first real um, my first real connection to the vertigo line is that I, I took that uh, Preludes and Nocturnes home that night of payday. And I thought, I'm just going to flip. I'm just going to look a little bit. And I didn't stop. And it was the first time since I was nine years old that I saw it necessary to read with a flashlight under the blankets at 2 a.m. And hope that still living with my parents that nobody knocked on the door and went, don't you have college tomorrow? Don't you have school? Um, and, And it was definitely like not Disney magic, but it was that dark kind that makes you want to know what that flickering is behind the door. Um, And I didn't stop. I couldn't stop. The next day at work, I was picking up the next, and then I'd read them over and over and hand them to my friends and read it, look at it, read it, look at it. Um, And eventually ended up hunting down individual issues just for the beauty of his covers because suddenly I could do my major. I could paint. I could make things. Um, So Vertigo was huge for me. Oh, wow. So, Casey, I know you used to work at a comic book store. Yeah, in fact, I think I... I think I worked at the comic book store in the heyday of Vertigo and the only thing I cracked I think was Preacher so I think I read the first year or so of Preacher and then the comic book store that I was at went out of business as they are often oft to do comic book stores generally don't stay in business very long um, but no I mean I, I'm ashamed to say that the really the flagship title Sandman the the one that you know now that I'm, we're looking at a for this panel, I was like, "Oh my god, this is so amazing! This is this is a masterwork of the medium." I didn't I didn't touch until you know I think I didn't read anything until maybe three or four years ago. So that's how completely out of the loop I was. Um, Preacher was my my one exposure, and aside from that, I think I was reading Frank Miller. So you know that's how <laughs> that's that's what says that's what says about when you're a 15 year old, you know. We're getting again that gravelly, cigarry consensus here. <laughs> yeah. oh, Lobo, Lobo, and Frank Miller. Yeah, those are my yep. those are my the two ones that I was into. For That's sure. how you roll. So, Joe, where did you find Vertigo? Um, so, when I was sixteen, I had my first job at McDonald's. I made a pittance, <laughs> but I got that fucking job so I could buy comic books because um, my f- neighbors had gotten me into them. And this was the '90s. This was the heyday of the X Men. There was X-Men number one had just come out, and it was the best-selling comic of all time. It had 18 covers, and Jim Lee was God. (laughs) Um, And then Image happened, and that was like, oh, God, these guys just left incredibly lucrative comics at the two biggest, and at that point, almost only uh, publishers of comics in the world, or in the United States, to go and form Image and do this crazy shit that they were doing over there. I did not buy a lot of Image comic books. I gave my friend Yorick, who was a Seventh-day Adventist, that's the only thing I remember about him, $60 and bought the Unity Saga from him, which was a huge Valiant crossover. Hmm. And um, in the stack that he gave me was Sandman 50, Distant Mirrors. And I read that book and um, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. That... it was like nothing else. I mean, Valiant in and of itself was, I think, a little bit more, I hesitate to use the word literary, but a little bit more story-driven hmm. than what was going on at Image. And my brother was a huge Image guy. My brother was reading Spawn and Wildcats and all that shit. But Sandman was literary. Like, Sandman was 
unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I ended up actually losing the collection that that was a part of. When I went to college, somebody stole it from me. And I, I love that collection. And so that kind of killed me for a while. And then in my 20s, I got back into it. I, I got comics from the library. And mm. the two that I read were Sin City, which was published by Dark Horse, and Sandman. Because Sandman was over at that point. And it kind of justified, it, it brought me back. It, like, it just brought me immediately back into the fold. Um, it's like nothing else to the point where I actually found another copy of Sandman 50. And um, my, my now wife turned it into the boutonniere for our wedding. Oh, no oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, wow. Have it, I have it in the car. Uh, and uh, it's funny because it was my wedding to a woman I love. And I still agonized over it because I am still a comic book collector. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, shit. I don't, no, no, I'm going to do this. Um, so, yeah, I read Sandman. I read Constantine. Then I took kind of another break and I moved up here and I ended up living right down the street from a, a big comic shop. And I went out and I bought... I said, I used to read comics, and I haven't read comics in about five years. What should I read? And uh, she handed me pre- uh, the first trade of Preacher and the first trade of Transmet. And within a oh. week, mm-hmm. I had bought and read all of it, of both <laughs> series. And that was then I was done. And it was like, Vertigo has been a touchstone for me pretty much my entire comic reading life. It, it, it always, and now coming back into it and looking at it, it's really, I feel, I feel justified in, that, in, in, in feeling that way because it's just, I, without Vertigo, I don't think I'd be reading comics now because superheroes, they got kind of thin for me. I still love them, but I love them more as concepts now. The stories I really love were largely um, uh, Vertigo stories. I think I'm in exactly the same place as you, Joe, on this, where it, I don't think I would be the fan of comic books that I am. If I had only been just reading superheroes this whole time, it's sort of like I need to cut that drug with other things. Sure, I, yeah. need, I need to take a break from, you know, people punching each other. Because, again, we're talking about that 90s, the shoulder pads and the grimacing and everyone's got scream face. <laughs> yes. And everyone has names like Strike Wolf, you know, spelt with a Y. Bloodwind. Oh. Bloodwind. Uh, in, in the 90s at DC, none of the big three were in the Justice League, but there was a character named Bloodwind oh, with yeah. a Y. Oh. I am not fucking around and it turned out uh, that it was Martian Manhunter in a disguise who had read a Spawn comic and felt a little bad about it (laughs) like so yes yes yeah it it was just pervasive I mean comic books uh, I think in the 1980s there was a sense that comic books were growing up uh, that Watchmen had come out and Dark Knight Returns had come out and there was this new respectability that was like fucking heroin to people who were both fans and the industry. And we were desperate to get more of that respectability, except their idea of what grown up was, was very adolescent. That mm. when you're desperate, because nothing makes you look more like a child than screaming that you're an adult. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, well, how do we learn all the most superficial wrong lessons from these things from the 80s? Let's lose all the nuance, lose, lose all the layers below the surface, and just have people killing each other and screaming and having bizarre G.I. Joe names and <laughs> going up on the roof to grumble and have man feelings. <laughs> and it was... 
it was Smoking embarrassing. Cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. That'll show you, mom. Also, adding a shit ton of spikes and chains to whatever your costume was. Oh god. Yeah. You and, were like a walking dungeon. Um, pouches. <laughs> you, pouches were very important in the nineties. Walking umlauts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how you do. So it was like it was that kind of world, and of course, I've always talked about the the trajectory of human taste and saying that. We're always at our absolute worst taste between the ages of 12 and 15. That those are the ones that when you look back to the music you like, the comics you read, and the haircuts you had, those are the most embarrassing, you know, just brackets of time in your entire life. You're like, oh, God, look what I looked like when I was 14. And you're you're just trying really hard. That's what this was for comic books. And it hit me at that age range. So, of course, I was lapping that shit up. But I imagine is getting into high school because I missed the first wave of Vertigo. Vertigo was like a beautiful off to the side. Hey, comics can still actually be good and mature during the time that this stuff was coming out. But again, it was preacher for me. And Jesus Christ, I think I have Wizard to thank for that. Wizard Magazine. No. Yep. God. Oh, man. Did I have something nice to say about Wizard Magazine, which was like the ugliest, stupidest part of fan culture in the 90s. Well, you just didn't use it like I did to check the value of your Magic the Gathering cards? It was pretty much that. <laughs> I mean, it, it fueled the speculator bubble and it just, yeah. it was dumb. But it said, hey, there's this really shocking, awesome comic called Preacher. And it was falling into that, which led to me falling into Transmetropolitan and then trying Sandman for the first time. And I was like, holy crap. You know, comic books don't have to be just this one thing that they've been shoveling at me forever. And if I didn't have this wave of different interesting stuff that was utterly shocking to me at the time, like, holy shit, somebody said fuck in a comic book. <laughs> or there's a boob. Yeah, there's a boob. <laughs> or, you know, and it was it was necessary because I really do think that comic books at their absolute worst come about because they're referencing other comic books and it just becomes a snake eating its own tail. And Vertigo was this wonderful moment where all of these outside influences like British comic books, uh, literary influences, poetry, everything started pouring into comic books, which had been basically recycling the same three X-Men stories since the mid seventies. And you're like, Holy crap, there's new things you can do with all of this. And it sort of, sort of bled outwards. I mean, a lot of people got that message wrong, but Vertigo was this beautiful little bubble where you could read a comic book on the bus and not feel ashamed. Well, what, what I think is interesting about what, what you're saying as far as um, Vertigo being unique in, in your experience after years and years of uh, capes and yes. things like that. Um, I wanted to remark that what I found interesting about jumping into Vertigo in my own life was that because I read Japanese comics, um, I had this hilarious perception. I, I wrote a paper in college about how American comics lacked subtlety and American comics as a whole were less nuanced than manga. So I get my weeaboo hat on. <laughs> um, but what got me um, what got me about Vertigo was the fact that during that time I was reading manga and those things that you mentioned before about violence and boobies and adventures like that were commonplace in most of the manga that I read. Um, and I was a big fan of things like uh, Junji Ito's work. Oh, good Lord. And uh, Battle Royale and things like that. So the idea of seeing a lot of blood in a comic wasn't really foreign to me at the point that I started reading it. 
Um, but it was more just like, oh, this is this shows that there is still some of this sensibility in Western art and Western culture that maybe I have to reevaluate my perceptions of what we create um, on on this side of of culture on the Western side of things. Um, so I had this whole vague Anglophile thing that started because of that, where it was like, well, maybe it's just Americans that are garbage bins. <laughs> and that's why we have to import all our talent from, uh, from, you know, the, UK. from the UK. Oh, man. But that's the thing. It's kind of funny looking at that is that if you've been already been primed on Junji Ito stuff, mm-hmm. is anything shocking at that point? Well, Junji Ito and, um, and slave labor, because again, that goth teacher, that, that goth art teacher in high school um, most of the comics being read around that time with me were like Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and like Roman Dirge's stuff and uh, Jamie Smart and things like that. And so it was funny having picked up uh, Johnny and having one of those meanwhiles that was lampooning image uh, or, or what mm. basically created image about the I don't know if anyone's seen this uh, Field. <coughs> yes yes thank you yes. Rob's Rob's work in there and me sitting there as the judgmental self-important goth being like huh that's why I don't read American comics unless they're underground you know <laughs> sort of thing and so Vertigo was a way of refining my taste and challenging my more judgmental nature which was interesting to me by going by going by way of literary things, it actually, humorously enough, got me back into mainstream capes because mm. of these alternate stories and uh, these bigger verses. Like, um, how do you put, like the uh, occult DC. Mm-hmm. I'm still crazy about like DC's occult characters, and it's entirely because of Sandman. I didn't ever think about them or give a shit in half until I read those comics. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, it, just leapt back into the Batman occult characters for that reason. I I think the interesting thing to me about Vertigo is that, and and this is something we've talked about, it is, I think, up until a certain point, you have Crisis on Infinite Earths, and that kind of reboots things, not just on a, on a, a continuity level for DC, but it, it gains the attention of people that don't normally read comic books and it's followed very closely by Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen which definitely captured the imagination of people that wouldn't be caught dead with a comic book and so you have this this idea that as as our, our go-to line on views is biff bam pow comics aren't just for kids anymore when at this point America is one of the few places where that is the idea and that is a relatively recent idea because in the in the 50s in the 30s and 40s and 50s Plenty of people were reading comic books. Comic books sold millions of copies, you know? So, and you have this tradition in Europe with people telling stories and using the graphic, you know, graphic sequential art. In Japan, there's a very rich history of telling all manner of stories using graphic sequential art. So... We're it, alone in that, really. Yeah, we. it really <laughs> is this weird idea because so much, so many of those stories are co-opted by heroes and then... Vertigo comes along and they start telling stories about protagonists, mm. right? This was, you well, can feel... If, if I can interject, is it, because this is a notion that I got when I was just sort of researching um, Karen Berger and her sort of influence on here, but this talent that she's talking about and some of the books that kind of started at DC and then eventually got sort of adopted into the Vertigo family, you know, if you're ta- your Sandman is obviously one of them and... 
Uh, Hellblazer is another. These started off as not Vertigo, but Vertigo yeah. came up and sort of sucked them into it. So it seems to me that Vertigo was just was just a, f- a way of focusing, a way of forging the, the a trend that was already happening, that DC was already making money off of and already encouraging into its own sort of formal thing. Because obviously, what like what is uh, V for Vendetta is like. 1988 or something, yeah. and Watchmen is 1985 or six or something. 85, 86. So we're yeah. all, we, there was already this this trend line that's happening that um, that I guess DC is probably the one who's putting the most of their money in. But it, it and it takes how many years is that? It takes a decade for them to actually figure out. Oh wait, we could do this as its own thing and make you know make this a focal point for what we're doing. So it, it seems like it's it's a little bit of an afterthought because the revolution happens in the 80s. Yes, you know? Vertigo. Vertigo has culturally existed since the 80s, for sure. Um, And I think what's interesting about that is we, um, as a woman, we talk about women in comics and who's influential. And I don't think there is enough discussion about Karen because she Mm -hmm. is the person. She is the one responsible for looking at the numbers for Saga of the Swamp Thing. Hmm. Yeah, She's responsible. Hmm. She had to sit here and be like, we need to go out and try something different. And go on a limb and actually packed a suitcase mm-hmm. and went to talk to these people. Went to talk to, you know, like Morrison went to talk to Milligan, went to talk to Neil. And we have this because she she noticed this trend. She was trying to point this out for quite a while and finally was able to convince somebody to treat it as the thing it was. Yeah, I really... I look at a lot of ways Vertigo did, and I think Karen Berger is such a catalyst for the comic book industry that we have today, more than almost any one human being. I mean, you yes. could point to the individual artists and stuff, but we wouldn't know who Neil Gaiman was in the mm-hmm. United States if not for Karen Berger. We wouldn't have, you know, there's no way that Alan Moore would have been given the freedom to do what he want and told, no, don't worry, I have your back. I'll argue with the guys in suits and say what we're doing here is important and I want to do more of it because we were still living in the age of the comics code at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. The comics code was kind of like this living embodiment of it's kind of like we, how we look at the dark ages. Yes. That there was this this burgeoning of amazing genre and talent and crazy subversive ideas that came crashing down in the 1950s with EC Comics because uh, you had comic books that were talking about like racism and and social uprisings and talking about the dangers of fascism and all of these things that were just really important but rubbed a lot of parents and church groups the wrong way. And they're like, no, comic books have to just be superheroes. So that when we look at things like Japan and the UK that didn't go through this, they've been going decades saying, no, comic books are for everybody. These comics over here are for kids and these comics here are for adults. And it's almost like Karen Berger was the person who sort of popped that balloon of, well, of course you can't have something aimed at adults. Of course you can't have a comic that's intentionally without the comics code because there's no way anyone would stock it. There's no way anyone would buy it. And she single handedly proved that wrong. Yeah, I think very much like um, the Hollywood in the in the twenties in the late twenties when they brought in Will Hayes and formed the um, basically the the censorship code that they would all agree that they would work under, and you know Frederick Wortham was that figure in the fifties for comic books, and he was underqualified and he made a lot of very grandiose statements about the natures of comic books and a lot of really shady statements on their linking comic books to delinquency when he really didn't have the data. 
to do it, but he managed to whip up a public fervor, and you get the code out of that, and you have 30, 30, 35, 40 years with only one comic book coming out without the comic co- comic book with without the 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 stamp on You're it. Talking about the Spider Man, the Spider Man, yeah, yeah, and like that's one thing that I always give props to Stan Lee for is that. They were like, it's basically Norman Osborn on drugs, and Peter tries to talk him down. And uh, is it? No, it's not Norman. It's um, it's uh, his, his son. What, his son what, why can't I remember his son's name? James Franco. Harry. Yeah, James, Harry. Uh, Harry. Harry. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yes, mm-hmm. it's a totally yeah. It's James Franco. I'll take um, the stuffed monkey. Thank <laughs> you very much. It's I. I will give it to you later. Nice. Um, and he's like, no, the story is important enough to go out without it, but. I, the and comics then, code was such a stranglehold that it wouldn't allow any drug story, even an anti-drug story that had been endorsed by the Attorney General yes, of the United States. Absolutely. <laughs> and so the interesting thing to, to me is that in the eighties, you get, you start to get what happened to Hollywood in the late sixties, which is you had these auteurs writing comics. People were getting their hands on British comics and reading stories like, like in anthologies like two thousand AD. They were reading Judge Dredd stories. Alan Moore comes along and starts writing Swamp Thing, and Swamp Thing isn't telling a typical Superman punches robot, robot flies through building story. These stories are are they're complex, and you don't necessarily feel good about the violence in them mm-hmm. because the the violence in them is murky and it's a it's grayscale because. You don't necessarily know. It's not dealing with, I'm good, I stand for right. It's weird. But they're popular. Yeah. Right? There is, and and Karen Berger coming around and fighting for that, that is, to me, that is the defining moment to, that is the moment where American comics finally catch up to the rest of the world. Because those creators embrace the fact that, they want to tell these stories and they want to tell these stories in these formats. And you don't have to be you don't have to use Elizabethan English and be born 500 years ago to tell a story that has that is literary, that has implications, that is critical of society or that has fantastic elements, but is also meta contextual um, that took me. I, I always say meta, and I wanted to use the whole thing, so I'm really proud of myself for remembering meta contextual. I'm gonna just bask in that for a second. Um, and it it really does hinge around this. For me, it really hinges around the Moore Gaiman con- connection, right? Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, and Swamp Thing, and Sandman. I, I think it is important to point out that, as you said, um, although it's not necessary to have 500-year-old Elizabethan English to uh, bring the drama and bring the noise, um, it is, however, notable and interesting that the person who acknowledged this is, you know, look, looking at Karen's credentials is interesting to me because, you know, coming straight out of college. Well, she was an English major, right? Yeah, she, that, w- she that... was an English literature major yeah. and also art history, yeah. which yeah. she came right out of college to work for DC in 79. It's crazy. And I think that's that a really crazy. interesting thing to point out is that she hopped right out of college into this job at DC. So she came from this academic and literary environment to what is commonly regarded as one of the most base forms of media mm. by many people mm. is pulp. You know, it, it's it's kitsch. It's not real art. And I have to I had to stop and say, what kind of person could look at this medium and see that potential other than somebody who has just been educated on the the nuances also of the common man's media, the common man's art. And I, I think that's important. 
Absolutely. I think that's really important. Yes, and I when I what I said before about the connection between Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, I meant to say the connection from Karen Berger yeah. to Alan Moore to Neil Gaiman because she really was. You don't have this without her. Mm-hmm. She and, is the key figure, and that's why I'm so excited she's working for Image now because strangely enough. DC is now Image in the 90s. It is. Yes, and Image it is. is DC is Vertigo in the 90s. And it's like, when did that happen? That's really weird. <laughs> it's it's weird because even when you look at the, the question of, of Neil Gaiman's success, which was, it's a blockbuster. Sandman is like nothing else. Uh, it wouldn't have happened without Karen Berger, too, because that wasn't Neil Gaiman's first pitch to DC. It was number three. I think it, he was originally going to do a take on the Jack Kirby version of the character with the yellow and red costume, who came into the book eventually. But he was going to do sort of a reboot of that. And Karen Berger's like, why don't you just create your own character? Yeah. Well, his first story for them was Black Orchid. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's another great thing is you, you look at a book like that. And again, you have someone like Karen looking at a book like that and being like, how many ways can you reinvent something? Like, how many ways can you bring new life to something that has always just sort of been like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of heroism. How oh, do you yeah. make that new? Yeah. And, this, and it's cool. like, the, it, it is. It's like when you look at, at Swamp Thing, there's no way that Alan Moore would have been given the freedom to do that with Superman, that you're not going to be able to tear something down and rebuild it again. But these sort of C and D list characters like Animal Man, like the Doom Patrol, these are the sorts of characters. It's the same thing at Marvel with Daredevil. Mm-hmm. It's it's somebody who's not exactly setting the sales charts on fire, who isn't your corporate mascot, yes. who isn't the thing that you rely on to sell, you know, party plates and and balloons <laughs> and and toys. Those are the things that you can mess with. Punisher party plate would be something I'd be totally down with, by the I'm way. I'm just totally imagining a Doom Patrol-themed party. <laughs> and that's the one where you go to and somebody puts hallucinogens in the wine that everybody's <laughs> drinking and then everybody comes out of it 12 hours later going, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> just a peyote cake. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah, I can only imagine, uh, oh, God, Grant Morrison as a childhood... Uh, party host oh, that would God. be really weird you invite grant morrison to entertain your kids you no. you, bl- you wake up uh, after blacking out with like pink floyd on the uh, sound system and like a bunch of buttercream smeared all over your ass <laughs> 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 what is this it's be- and yeah and it's like pink floyd bootlegs from some obscure concert they did yeah. i think um but it's 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 fantastic that these people had when you look at what was going on in culture at that point it's fantastic that that these creators had this space because the things that they were doing were radical when you look at what else is going on um in in comic books and and I might add these were all creator owned works mm. so Gaiman owned Morpheus he owned with uh Dringenberg and Sam Keith and I think was it also Dave McKeon I'm not sure if Dave I, had ownership. I don't yeah, think I can't he, I, he, has, he has a greater amount of control that I think is largely ceremonial. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that they learned something from. I guess we could, if we could draw a big, you know, tragic gothic painting of the fucking over of Alan Moore. Uh, <laughs> that uh, I think they yeah. keep. A, DC has like a special ceremonial dagger that they bring out every three years <laughs> to twist in Alan Moore's back. 
to make him come out and grumble at them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that I, I I really think that that's amazing. Looking back on image now, from it, it from, might be important for Mike or for someone to explain that to maybe if we haven't if we haven't already elucidated that for our viewers is it it was pretty a rough start for someone like Alan Moore, and so it could have been a lot harder for creators like him who had that voice to get by because he got fucked over. Well, I mean, he really, in a lot of ways, died for the sins of the industry. Yeah, the yeah. industry, if you're a comic book fan, that a big thing that you have to sort of reconcile or deal with is the fact that the ugly, an ugly underbelly of comic book fandom is that a lot of creators who have made these massive multimedia companies billions of dollars, like Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby should have died a millionaire. Oh, absolutely. Steve Ditko should have died a millionaire well, for co-creating Spider-Man. You know? I mean, their estates now, because of lawsuits, are now... Uh, so I, I've cashed in a little bit on that, but, I mean, look at Bill Finger. Yes. Yeah. Like, nobody knew who Bill Finger was until, like, three or four years ago, because his, the, his family started making noise. But then, at the end of Lego Batman, he got a oh, fucking yeah. credit. With which, Bill Finger. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Because finally, as mm-hmm. the connection between Bill Finger and Bob Kane is very similar to the connection between Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Stan Lee was the front man, but Jack Kirby was doing so much work, and Ditko was doing so much work, and these are the unsung heroes of this this craft that we all love. So and we, Alan Moore got it really yeah. bad. But he was the first person who stood up and said, <clears throat> "This is bullshit." Yes, that there's this understanding that a lot of creators had for the longest time. That you're essentially like working at McDonald's, that I don't own the hamburger that I make, the corporation owns it. It doesn't matter how awesome this hamburger is or how groundbreaking this hamburger is. I don't own a bit of it, and I can't use it to promote myself. I can't use it as a way of sustaining myself after I leave this job. I don't own any part of it. I just made a bunch of guys in suits who never touched this stuff rich. Mm -hmm. But Alan Moore was like, no, this is bullshit. And the thing that they did was... I think we've talked about this kind of before in other ones, but the short version of it was that they made a deal to sign a contract saying that after a year of it being out of publication, Watchmen would revert back to the ownership of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. They had no intention of that ever going out of publication. It, I believe, is the longest continuous run of any trade paperback or graphic novel. Oh, God. And every so often, they'll trot that stuff out there and... Just remind Alan Moore, you know, hey, by the way, we own your children. And I don't even think he wants his kids back at this point. No, no, no. He's totally written the whole thing off. But the blowback that they got from that led to better deals for everybody, including Mm -hmm. the folks for, I mean, they're so afraid at DC to use Morpheus or any of those characters created for Sandman in a way that will make fans angry that they actually... I think it's just ceremonial. There's no law holding them this, but there's a tradition that says we want to get the approval of Neil Gaiman before we use them. So when Grant Morrison used the Daniel Morpheus character in the JLA run, yeah, they got his permission and let people know publicly, don't worry, Neil is okay with this. (laughs) Yeah, I think Alan Moore exists in this really interesting space because he's at the crest of this wave that was building up through the 80s where you had underground comics were starting to gain prominence in in the the kind of subculture so you had people like Scott McCloud and Zot was popular the Hernandez brothers and Love and Rockets was gaining was, the uh, was pre-crisis really br- Dave Sim yeah Dave yeah exactly before Pre-crisis, the troubles Dave Sim. <laughs> and even now Dave Sim is this weird like 
mishmash of like, I'm crazy, but hey, are you a young creator? Let me help you out. <laughs> right? <laughs> really, really weird. But um, He's the Mel Gibson of comics. Yeah, well, absolutely. Oh and then you look at Todd McFarlane in the first fucking year of Spawn. He had Frank Miller, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, and Dave Sim all write an episode of Spawn. Yeah. Hmm. And Neil almost got... Well, Neil had that whole issue with Angela where, yeah. was, yeah. you know, he, he had the experience similar to Moore of making somebody money and potentially getting fucked for it. Yeah, yes. absolutely. But he won eventually. Well, because yeah. he was because of those lessons, he was smart and he was basically like, this is my character. I'll let you use her. But then. Eh, well, and now you know. we have the comic book legal defense fund. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which yes. is Shout a force out. for good. I, and the Heroes Initiative, both very good. Yeah. Which touch on both of those issues. Both. The fact that there needs to be a charity for destitute comic book creators, that fucking hurts. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially in this uh, day and age. I've actually uh, been talking to my wife about making a um, a donation to the, the Hero Initiative because there's this meme going around about... Um, Actual, uh, like, white supremacist Nazis going to the, the I think it was the um, Marvel offices in the 60s and saying, yeah. Jack, tell Jack Kirby we want him to come down here. We're going to show him what a real Nazi would do to his Captain America. And he fucking rolled up his sleeves and went down there. <laughs> it's on. And they were gone. Yeah. And hmm. so I'm like, yeah, I think I think we need to remember yeah. other, other Nazis. They're a superstitious and cowardly they, lot. They, they, <laughs> hell yeah, they so are. True. Um, but, yeah, I think... When you, when you look at Vertigo, there's this perfect storm going on in that world that allows this to happen. And I just, I think the comic world is better for it yeah. like, in every possible way. We live in a world now where you can own your own creation, control it, promote it, and get it out to just as many comic book stores as Batman is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that is the one thing that Image really needs to get 90s image gets a bad rap for a lot of what was going on because as i like to say all these creators from marvel and all these um writers and artists from marvel and dc went and started their own um their own production companies where they all made wrote about the x-men except todd mcfarlane who wrote about like uh magic batman (laughs) um but i think you really need to you need to acknowledge them for the fact that they said no we are not going to slave away from you. We are going to go and we are going to create our own properties. We will own them. We will be able to do whatever we want with them. And if we fail, we fail on our own merits. And so, well, and and I think Vertigo. You have you have Alan Moore to thank for that. You have Vertigo to thank for that because it, those happen very close together. Yeah, that's how you can have something like Garth Ennis and and Steve Dillon, R.I.P. Owning Preacher. That's oh, how you God. get to that. Yeah. It fucking hurts, doesn't it? Still, yeah. you can own your own work at Preacher. I don't think you have the same level of control that you do at Image, <clears throat> but Image the wouldn't be possible without this kind of comic book work saying, no, write the story you want to write. Fuck the understanding of the only kind of genres that can make money. Do the thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. You can own it. You can promote it. They can never take it away from you or have some <laughs> editor come in. And I think that was the thing uh, that happened to Keith Giffen once. The fucking co-creator of Lobo had a pitch yeah. to DC and was told Lobo would never do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, hmm, hmm. So that's that's crazy. Oh, it. But yeah, it's like we live in a golden age, and I have to think that that like that bottleneck, that that place where it sort of exploded, and everything started to get better again. It was Karen Berger and Vertigo and Neil Gaiman, and God, I'm glad things are better now. 
It's also, I think, an interesting thing to point out some degree of mutual benefit culturally um, as far as having this British invasion. Um, If you pick up Vertigo books, one of my favorite things to do is uh, read introductions or thoughts of the authors. And um, if I were still drinking, we would play the drinking game of how many times are we talking about uh, Thatcher-like politics? I think we had a phone conversation about this very thing. Fascism Mm -hmm. inspires some great art. Yes. Yes. Expect some great things, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Make comics great again. (laughs) (laughs) Do you say that? I was reading reading, the other day, I was reading the first issue of V for Vendetta, and at the beginning, you're hearing the radio blare over and Mm -hmm. setting up the stage for the authoritarian state that you know britain is living under and it says you young men you need to make britain great again (laughs) i was Mm -hmm. like i was like did they really did they get it for v for vendetta (laughs) somebody in the campaign was reading alan moore right alan moore of all the things he doesn't want to take credit for (laughs) yeah so let's let's take a quick break and we'll be back with more conversation about vertigo who here likes comic books Who likes superheroes? Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s! That's what I thought. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. And though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection, issue by issue, and in my own little way, try to answer the question, were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these books deserve another chance, and they're going to get it on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. So we're back. Uh, we're talking Vertigo. And I was thinking about one thing as it comes as Vertigo. And it's the thing that... Tits we, and ass? Well, that's part. That's <laughs> oh. always going to be part of it. But, oh, okay. But I was thinking Vertigo... God, I hate saying it. it. It hurts to say this. But Vertigo isn't the influential powerhouse that it used to be. Mm. It's We don't live... It, we mean, we live in a treasure trove, a golden age. We live in a time where... Uh, these kind of amazing, thought-provoking comic books are everywhere nowadays, but they're not happening at Vertigo. I know. Um, Karen Berger stepped down as the executive editor in 2013, and her handpicked successor, Shelley Bond, was fired in 2016 when DC announced that they were restructuring. That's mm. corporate for we're going to fucking ruin it. Yeah. Um, right. And Wait, now, did that happen around the same time that Hellblazer was canceled, or the Hellblazer got canceled? I guess right, it ended. Oh no, same the, year, right? 2013? Twenty thirteen. No, twenty thirteen. Yeah. So the minute uh, that uh, Karen Berger gets out the door, they're like, "Oh fuck that thing," and they axed mm. Hellblazer. Mm. And uh, that you can really see how much of it was that singular vision that she had built a lot of clout and was keeping this boat afloat. Vertigo now is under the direct control of the main DC office. We're talking about Dan DiDio and Jim Lee. Or uh, file under people you do not want in charge of your comic book uh, imprints. They, they control the fate of Vertigo now. And this is the same thing as, like, I think, two months after Karen Berger 
had uh, retired from Vertigo. There was a quote in the New York Times from Dan DiDio, and he was saying, quote, it was the, the company's support for the Vertigo line was, quote, myopic, that it was oh. short-sighted for mm. the comic book <laughs> industry to push ahead and support these books that, that are only aimed at a narrow range of the audience. And I'm just like, have you looked in the fucking mirror? God. Yeah, right? Like, the, the line that was, that was uh, always about uh, gender diversity and cultural diversity and telling visionary stories about things that were actually more complex than good guy hits bad guy, bad guy fall down. That was myopic. It's not the <laughs> absolute. Hey, 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 hey. Like, Sometimes good guy become bad guy. Then itself. No, that's too complex. Mm-hmm. That's too complex for DiDio's DC comics. All right. And occasionally a bad guy becomes a good guy, and he's a lethal protector. He is a lethal God. protector, or he's um, a mindless. I don't know, like puppy dog, like what they did with Saber. Sabretooth was the last one to really go, but that's uh, once again a yeah. whole other discussion. <laughs> We're gonna. Uh, oh God. Is it? Is it? Uh, so I think we had. Didn't we have – Mike always puts these great stingers at the end of our shows. And I think on the Batman one, I think you had a had of some one, some comic book author that was talking about the stupidity of what DC did with Batman after, like, The Dark Knight comes. And it's like the, those, like, Bruce Wayne is dead. So it's like anyone who wanted to go walk into a comic book store and buy a Batman story will have no idea what the fuck is going on yes. because of this this thing. <laughs> is this, this this seems like the same, the same sort of ideas. They're like – never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, right? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like what DC is now. you got to <laughs> yank that defeat out of the jaws of victory. Yeah. <laughs> and that was Darwin Cook, by the way. Oh. There we yeah. are. Also missed. Yeah. Also oh, loved. God. That one, that, yeah. So that, I, yeah. I guess looking at this this environment that we now find ourselves in, where the real groundbreaking work is being done at places like Image and Oni and Boom and... Is Vertigo dead? And the other question is, does it really matter if the spirit seems to be of of the original Vertigo is alive in other companies? I'm glad to say that I read as of when I found this 19 hours previous uh, to (laughs) to double checking some of my notes for this today in the library. I did find an announcement about Karen going over to Dark Horse to Hmm. start her own imprint there. Whoa. So. Wow. If Karen is alive, I venture to say, and boldly I believe, Vertigo's ethic is not dead, as you're as you're indicating. I think that it's just uh, picking out some new drapes and a new house, maybe <laughs> a couple, yeah. a new house of secrets. Yes, um, hopefully, because yes. I just uh, it was soul crushing for you know me, me as several decades of sorts um, of a Vertigo person. Just to to hear that Karen was going away, it was it was definitely a case of like, well, I've been watching things start to go downhill a little bit. I think uh, one of the last things that Vertigo created that I enjoyed thoroughly um, was like Northlanders. Yeah, that's a while. And that's that's a long ass time ago. Yeah, I think for me, the last thing that I really became super invested in as it was coming out was Scalped. Oh, by yeah. Jason Arian and yeah. R.M. Guerra. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? Unwritten. Unwritten, Unwritten. was carrying, oh, yeah. Unwritten was carrying Vertigo, really yeah. in my opinion. Unwritten was carrying Vertigo yeah. mm-hmm. yes. in the last couple of years. Yeah. I, I do want to say that I think it's Image that she went to. And the only reason yes, I bring that up. Yes, but she did go. Did yeah, she, was she starting also some, Dark Horse too? She's starting something with See, Dark Horse. That's, that's great. I want article. her as many places yeah. as possible. Yeah. The, the Dark Horse thing was just announced a couple of days ago. 
and that's it's actually going to be called Burger Books. It is her. Oh, okay, sweet. Yeah. All right, I wow. missed that then. Okay, good but call. But I believe the image thing is she had been called in to edit Surgeon X, which mm-hmm. is a sci-fi series that was written by a first-time author who found Karen Berger to edit it on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, okay. where, that's where she tracked her down. And uh, Karen was super excited to get on board. It was the first time she'd had someone pitch to her in a while that she'd been out of the loop for a while. So she's on to do editing work on that image title. And now she's got the bug again. And I hope this means that she's going to bring in all sorts of brand new talents. Right. And I'm really sad that it doesn't get to happen at her baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I but, do, I, but maybe this is a good thing because she gets to own this one. That's yes. the same yes. idea now. They can't take this away from her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I totally misunderstood. The, the way you said that made me think that you had just found it, not that you had you had just found it because it had just happened. Oh, well, I, no. Um, I, I had just found out um, from an article that was that was put up uh at at the time that I found it today, nineteen hours previous. Okay, okay. So it was at least a day and a half ago, I believe. Okay, maybe maybe two or three. But really fresh news. That's, that's, yeah, yeah. That's my okay. So okay, my bad. I'll own that. Um, but bouncing off of that, I think it is better. Like Didio's had a hard on for killing Vertigo for years. Yeah. Um, because um, he is basically so um. The, the the main antagonist of Crisis on Infinite Earths was the Anti-Monitor. Dan Didi is the anti-quality. He, he doesn't want anything good going on at DC Comics while he's over there. And um, I think now he just kind of, you know, he he really, it, it definitely feels to me, and I said this on the Batman episode, he wants to turn DC into 90s Marvel. Yeah. And he's done it really, really well. Uh, he has just totally destroyed those characters and it's seeped out into the DC cinematic universe too. But the fact that Karen Berger is out there, the fact that she's involved at all in comics speaks to the fact that there are other places now. Like image is not the small kind of niche publisher. It was, it's a powerhouse now and it's putting out some of the best stuff that you can buy now. Not to mention the fact that you have places like, Boom and Top Shelf and Dynamite, which all have these really interesting lineups and they're letting people take a crack at it. You know, it's like I don't read Marvel Comics anymore. I don't read DC Comics anymore because they don't offer me anything. I don't I could literally there is literally nothing I care about less than Civil War 2. I really mm. like. I I really don't care at all. I don't care what Hickman's doing at Marvel. I don't care what. Um. Uh, Scott Snyder is doing it DC, but I am really interested when somebody says, oh, Karen Berger is going to be at Dark Horse because I know that's going to be innovative. I know that she's going to be bringing on people that have ideas that they want to articulate that may be challenging, but that are going to make people think about them. And that's kind of what I I don't want the same. Sh- I've been reading for comic books for fucking yeah. almost 30 years at this point. Well, 25 years at this point. I'm like, I want stuff that's going to challenge me as a reader. I want stuff that I can walk away from feeling good that I gave money to. Hmm. Hmm. And I used to feel that way about Vertigo. And now it was like, it was really heartbreaking. To, the, the treatment of of um, Berger and, and her, the, the Shelly Bond. Shelley Bond. Yeah. Yes. I always want to call her Samantha Bond, but that's the woman that plays Money Penny in the new James Bond, in the newer <laughs> James Bond movies. Um, that was really, that was really shitty. And it came to exemplify the way DC does business now. 
the way they protect people that are predatory and kind of like because the Shelley Bond thing came right on top of the whole Eddie Berganza thing, oh, God. Yeah. which was just a clusterfuck for them. And they kind of they kind of did some like, well, we're dealing with it. And Warner Brothers got involved and was like, we're we're forwarding it to the proper people. Is this and, the only time that a corporate overlord has gotten involved in this and has made I, something it better? Feels <laughs> like it feels like it, but it's just at this point, I, I, it feels like the damage is done. You know, I, I find it interesting to note that so DC Comics and uh, Time uh, Time Warner merged in 1989. So around the time of the Batman movie, mm-hmm. they they merged there. I find, and and normally that's the death knell for something, right? Normally when you get eaten up by a bigger company and it's publicly traded. And then over time, you know, they're just going to start sucking the life out of it until they've destroyed all that it's worth. It's interesting that uh, that Vertigo, its heyday, that it, its inception and its heyday is happening five, ten years after the the merger actually happened. That there was at least enough time where there was some insulation between um, the suits at sort of Time Warner at this new huge conglomerate and the people who are making – and Karen Berger and the other people who were uh, – Karen Berger, excuse mm-hmm. me, who are making the uh, those decisions where the life wasn't sucked out of it. Maybe maybe that's just like the uh, the nineties. Maybe well, that's, that's something that is a thing that's unique to the nineties that's not unique to today. I, I, don't know. I think that is a nineties thing, and I think that's yeah. a money talks thing. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the the culmination of those two ideas. Yeah, uh, it, it's just that. Um, I, I couldn't see something like this happening now. I couldn't see this happening to because we are certainly at the point now where, like what like three company owns or companies own most of our entertainment as it is like i you know i i don't see i don't see marvel coming up with something similar to vertigo at this day and age because you know owned by disney same kind of thing is that this is all about um a lot of this is not not competing with yourself at this point when they talk about things like we can't make this cartoon anymore because girls like it and that's, you know, that's not the demographic we're going for because that will take away from Disney princesses. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing is happening in comics. <laughs> I, Young Justice. I, yes, yes, I, Christ I, on a cracker. I always fucking hate that because if you can't assume that at, if you knock down one entry point that all of the people that got engaged because of that thing that appealed to a different audience are immediately going to go somewhere else. If you knock down Vertigo, those people aren't going to all start buying Batman. I went to Image. It yeah. was the same deal. Like mm. I would have never given Image a second thought, honestly, um, because of my limited experience with their books. Um, I, I was wholly a Vertigo person up until very, very recently. Um, and it was only working with the, the guys on views and stuff that I was like, well, why the fuck would I care about Image? Sort of thing. Isn't that, isn't that again, like Spawn? Isn't that the sort yeah. of thing where the, the hair is uh, they had a hair is Motley Crue levels of height and things <laughs> yes. like that? I had a very limited view of what that meant. And it wasn't until someone was like, no, they're doing what Vertigo did. Yeah. Try this book sort of thing. I'm going, oh, so there's one thing they made that doesn't suck. And then, you know, when, when they started piling on and going, the ethic is creative people control their own work. Yeah. And it gets a logo That's that. the selling point. It is. It, for me. And it's that freedom, that freedom to to push what comics are and what you expect them to be. And I don't see Vertigo doing that anymore. The Vertigo label to me used to mean not only was it a sign of quality, that there are people at the head of this imprint. I mean, 
Karen Berger, who has an eye for talent and is incredibly high standards about the stuff that gets put out under her label, that her umbrella means something. And I compare it to other companies like Marvel has tried to do creator owned uh, pockets or imprints, and they've tried to do that with mature readers ones. Mm-hmm. Marvel Max is yeah, the around Max series. And aside from Marvel Max putting out um, Alias, the Jessica Jones series, I can't think of another thing that they did that could have been considered a Vertigo caliber title. The rest of it is just superheroes that swear, and there's boob and bl- boobs and blood. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't have that, it's just like it felt, and even the label that they would put on Max versus the label they put on Vertigo. I mean, it's just a nice little italic thing near the barcode that says suggested for mature readers. Marvel Max had this thing on there like it was bragging about offensive content. Well, they yes. made ugly books with a lack of nuance. It it wasn't, mm. I mean, even then it's not analogous to Vertigo because they weren't looking for, they were not looking for what was the bleeding edge, what was the, the limit and playing with that limit. They were looking for leaping violently over the cliff yeah. sort of thing where it's just like, I just need to jump into the huge degree of too much to look like we are edgy rather than play with the idea of our limitations. Which is so fucking funny because that is exactly DC's approach to building a cinematic universe. Exactly. (laughs) But I want, so I think the interesting thing that happens here is Time Warner uh, acquires DC and Batman comes out and it makes a shit ton of money and Batman Returns comes out and it also makes a shit ton of money. And so they're fine with kind of letting Vertigo lends this air of importance and like quality to DC and they're making money. So that's fine. But now that basically uh movie Bob just released this really great YouTube video about the, what Marvel Marvel comic book universe basically is now. And I think DC is doing a very similar thing. It's a, it's an IP farm. You can, you can use your comic books as a test bed for your audience and have a built-in test audience for any movies you might want to make out of that because clearly movies are the future, right? It's like young adult fiction is the same thing. People are picking up film properties or, or film rights to things that have like one book out or yeah. that they've read like a proof of. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. That's what comics are doing now. And so I think that you have Warner Brothers going, okay, we did this new – like DC did the new 52 – they were continually that didn't really affect Vertigo too much, although it did affect Constantine and a few yeah. of the other characters. But um, and I still stand by the fact the the idea that bringing John Constantine into the mainstream DC universe is the worst thing you could do to the character because his existence functionally breaks the DC universe. Yeah, he <laughs> ages. That's yeah, the thing. well, he ages and he's a prick and he kind of flies in the face of the nature of a lot of those heroes, but also. Putting him in a team breaks yeah. him. Yeah, no, his yeah. world feels different than a superhero world. Yes, right? absolutely, because it's the real world. Yeah. Like yeah. all these these Chris Nolan movies, the Chris Nolan Batman movies, where he's trying so real to be, he's trying so hard to be gritty and real. It's like, why didn't you just make John Constantine movies? That you would have fucking loved that. Right. That's like what you're saying about team ups with John Constantine. It's just like Justice League Dark is like a three legged dog of a oh, fucking book. Yeah. You know, where it's just like you're you're actually actively crippling what you can do with <laughs> yes. the character mm-hmm. it's, it, or maybe a three-legged foot race or something i don't want to knock dogs or anything no, but like, it's just, yeah, because you want to you you see a three-legged dog and you want to clasp it to your bosom and yeah. give it all the love that it could possibly <laughs> want i think that 
Justice League Dark, I read one issue of that, and I actually, Kit read a lot more of it than that. I read so you, much. I had a eyes great bled. deal of respect for you because you held on to that book. You wanted it so badly to be good. I tried so hard and it was, got so far. It was like the <laughs> rabbit you see on the side of the road that's still barely alive, and you know you could try and take it home and nurse it back to health, but it's never going to be the same. It's never going to have any kind of quality of rabbit life. Mm-hmm. So you know the best thing to do is to just put it out of its misery. It's a baby bird out of the nest. I'm just sitting there with my heel like lingering over it. Yeah. Just like, how much do you want to fly? And so you know? I think that now in an age where DC desperately wants those mega bucks that the, a cinematic universe brings in, we've already seen their approach to it is is hackneyed and awful. Um you know, it's like the script for Suicide Squad was written in six weeks, six weeks to write a movie script. And it shows um, Vertigo has nothing to offer. Right. It's they're not because of the very nature of Vertigo, which was this place you could go and tell stories like Scalped or Preacher mm-hmm. or transmit and even more mundane stories, which were just about the relationships between people. Um it was a, it's a prestige imprint. It, it was a place where you is. could even if you know it's not Batman and it's not selling like Batman, except in trade paperbacks to audiences that aren't going into comic book stores that aren't your usual hardcore lifer Wednesday warrior types. Yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I, I think the one thing that we haven't talked about is we haven't talked about Brian K. Vaughn here because I mean I think that's I think that's pretty important as far as that is concerned as the yeah. who whose work do you refer to non do you refer non comic book readers to. I mean, that's, uh, the, you that's know, and, 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 and I'll say certainly, uh, I think I read why the last man, like seven, eight years ago, a long time ago. Um, and I reread it again for, for this one. I'm it's absolutely, it's, it's like, it's like pop, it's like popcorn comic books. It's there. It's um, so fun. Absolutely. So fun to read. He's fantastic. He's great. Um, and it's just the, it's just the right medicine for someone who just has no appreciation for the medium yeah. and who can jump into it and go like, Oh my God, this is fun. I love it. I love it. Um, why the last man was huge for him. He's the he's the he's now the guy that you hand over you hand over the keys to to anything because Saga and, and Paper three, Girls it's all going to work. Yeah. You know? but he you know he didn't take Paper Girls and Saga to Vertigo. No, no. It's yeah, a, no, it's, right. that's he creator didn't. migration for yeah. you. Yeah. That's the thing is that once they have their own power, they have options, which is what effectively, in some strange way, what empowered Vertigo is also what's killing Vertigo. Yeah, in a lot of senses, is they're like you know what you're not letting us go this direction. You're not letting us do what the ultimate ethic of your imprint was. So we're going to go to the place that not only assures us of that, but gives us way more rights to our own properties. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. And and I, I may not be like the number one Saga person or anything, but I applaud the success of Saga for those reasons, for that particular ethic of being able to take it and go to image. And you, again, as described, have so many people who have never read comics, and that has become effectively a new spiritual Sandman yes. for yeah. this decade of comics. Yeah, it's absolutely. A touchstone. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good place to end this conversation before we start getting really dark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let's let's take a short break, and we'll be right back with high point, low point.
Allegedly, soccer is a beautiful game. It is when you know what's going on. That's the problem. MLS is 20 years old, and people are still shocked to hear that there's an American soccer league. That's why you and I are talking about it. This is a discussion of American soccer for nerds and beginners. It's a good first step if a crippling soccer addiction is something that's missing from your life. Join the club. Celebrate the 20th anniversary of MLS by actually following the season. Hands-Free Football. New episodes every week at handsfreefootball.com. And we're back, folks, on Radio vs. the Martians. This month we're talking about Vertigo. And yes, it is time for High Point, Low Point, where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel, on Vertigo. Joe, I want to start with you. What is the low point of Vertigo? So I've been I've been kind of bouncing around, and there's one that's really apparent to me, but I feel like it will be at least one other person's. But I I'm just gonna go with it. Um it's I think the low point of Vertigo is the is the firing of Shelley Bond, basically to to so that and effectively the death of Vertigo. Um, I think it was a really underhanded move. It was we're going to fire her because we don't want anything to do with this imprint anymore because of the guy that's basically the publisher now hates it. But we're going to classify it as a restructuring so that we don't look like the huge flaming assholes that we really are. And I'm sure Young Animals, the umprint that they've basically brought in to replace it, is fine. Uh, I personally, I haven't read Umbrella Academy. I don't know what Gerard's way writing prowess is. But I will tell you that I don't think it'll ever... I, I just, I feel like it was such a shot in the foot and a slap in the face. Because Vertigo did so much for DC Comics. It legitimized them in a way... That Marvel could never, you know, Marvel tried doing them even before Max. There was Epic, mm. which was an attempt to kind of do this mature reader stuff. But they could never get their foot in the door the way that Vertigo did. Yeah. Vertigo legitimized DC Comics in a way that no superhero publisher had ever been legitimized before. And I think, um, you know, I, I think that it it really sent a strong message about not just the stories that could be told using a graphic uh, format, uh, but also about the commitment that the publisher and the imprint had to creators and how they were treated and how, how much leeway they had. And really getting firing Shelley Bond and effectively shutting down and shuttering Vertigo was a very clear message from DC saying, we no longer care about being innovative. We no longer care about sheltering new talent and building it. We no longer care about giving young authors a place where they can tell the stories they want to tell unfettered by this con- this mired fucking continuity that we have in this other world that we ourselves have fucked into the ground. We only want basically... To farm our IP from these comic books that we're, we we own right now and just basically keep on trying to make as much money as we can while we fuck up our cinematic universe. <laughs> it's, it's really just because that's that's really what that that says to me. We don't care about comics as a storytelling meeting. We only care about them as far as how much we can line our pockets with Batman and then maybe Superman because, you know. I mean, how quickly did it take the new 52 to become 52 new titles to 20 titles about Batman and 17 about Superman? Yeah. Oh, I I think I'm I'm kind of in the same place as you are for my low point, and it's 
the the leaving of uh, of Karen Berger, the firing of Shelley Bond. Do you guys ever read Gotham Central? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, remember that that was the whole point that Commissioner Gordon was no longer uh, the commissioner of the police. And, but there was a status symbol that came with being part of the major crimes unit in that book. Were you somebody who got recruited by Gordon? Mm-hmm. Because it mm-hmm. meant something. It meant mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. were for real and that there was a standard of talent. And there was a standard of integrity that went into it. Shelley Bond was handpicked by Karen Berger. Mm-hmm. That, that meant something. It meant that, you know what? I believe that without Karen Berger, this thing can go on. Mm-hmm. And then 10 fucking minutes... After uh, after uh, Karen Berger is gone, we get that myopic quote from Dan DiDio. Yeah, which was nothing but a fuck you to both Karen Berger and Vertigo. <laughs> Thank you for all the Eisners. Your life's work is a joke. Take the fucking watch. Yeah. It's, you know, fuck you. Every time DC puts out one of those, these are the essential hundred graphic novels you have to buy. You know what that thing's fucking filled with? Vertigo. Yeah. And it's all stuff that has gone back decades I have a coworker who's 23 years old. He read Sandman for the first time last year and loved it. That's this is a book that was coming out before he was born. I think he was in kindergarten when it ended. That's that's insane and he still loves it. Is there a book starring Batman not written by Frank Miller or Alan Moore <laughs> that you can say about is still creating new readers to comic books. Hmm. Vertigo had this unique ability to create new fans, not get the th- you know the usual thing that happens with, with fans when a new superhero movie comes out, which is people who were already reading comics but had lapsed on reading Captain America or reading Fantastic Four or whatever, this just reignites their joy of a character. They're they're reading comics already. They're reading superhero comics, but they're not reading Batman comics or they're mm-hmm. not reading Captain America. So you get a little bit of a boost from that, but it's an entire closed bubble. It's just like this this info it's this ecosystem that already has all of the pieces in it that you're trying to fight over. That money. What you're not trying to do is what Vertigo did which is take a non-comic book fan and make them into a comic book fan. There are, you know, do you really want to cut off the thing that is creating works of art that are still selling well today? Does anyone reading, you know, f- you know, collections of like trades that came out when DC was doing Bloodlines <laughs> or Eclipso the Darkness <laughs> Within or is are these things standing the test of time? Are you making Timeless works of art, or are you just making Secret Invasion again? Are are you making stuff that people are going to read from now, or are you making works of art, and I have quotes around that, that are so cued into that mired continuity that unless you've been reading it for 10 years, even if you know these characters backwards and forwards like I do, you still don't know what the fuck is going on? It's <laughs> the people who used to make the great Vertigo titles are not going to Vertigo anymore. Nope. You mentioned Brian K. Vaughn. Mm-hmm. He's going to Image Comics. Uh, Jason Aaron, who did um, you know uh, Scalped, Scalped yeah. for Image, he's going with Southern Bastards and other books to Image. Yeah. He's not going to Vertigo anymore. I bet you if Neil Gaiman wanted to write a career-owned book, he'd go to Image. Yeah, Karen Berger went to Image. I mean, and again, like we've said before, image is the new vertigo. It is the place where you're pushing, you know, the limits of what you think you can get away with in a comic. Does anyone really think sex criminals would have ever been published by vertigo today? Oh, God, no. 
Either too busy it w- doing unfollow yes. the reality TV of comics at this oh, point, no. is what Vertigo has become. It's, you know? it's sad because it's like a Chew. Chew, which is a book about a cannibal federal agent living yeah. in the chicken apocalypse. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is the best fucking sum up That's of beautiful. Chew I have ever heard. That book is fucking amazing, and it became a huge hit because it was given the chance to grow and be fucking weird. It was rejected at Vertigo. John Lehman pitched that series to Vertigo, and they said, yeah, no thanks. Saga, Saga, if it had been a Vertigo title, even coming off of, you know, having the wind at his back, Brian K. Vaughn would have never been allowed to do the stuff with Vertigo. The Saga, ugly, organic little bits that just come in real life that we usually brush out of our fiction, things like breastfeeding and taking a poop. I mean, these are things that they never would have allowed. Either that or these books would have lasted for six issues, been canceled. People would have gone, yeah, I wish I would have seen what happened to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, even stuff like, you know, a lot of the work that uh, Ed Brubaker does. He does it at Image. Mm-hmm. That's the place where you can push boundaries. And Vertigo? They've been making shit like Coffin Hill. They've been making shit like, you know, Unfollow and stuff like that, where they, they fall prey to, again, that, uh, what is it, 13-year-old sensibility you were describing earlier that, um, you know, edgy and adults is like, I saw some blood. I woke up and I went into the living room and I watched a rated R movie while mommy and daddy was sleeping. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm a man, you know. It, I, the words that I don't want to say about Vertigo today are the ones I think sum it up. And it, it, it burns my throat to just spew these words out, but it feels safe and corporate now. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Sanitized. Yes. So, Kit, what's your low point? Well, I, it's uh, uh, consensus is my low <laughs> point. That's the saddest part. Um, squarely 2013. It just, I, I just feel again that, like, there, if anyone remembers... Uh, Stephen King's retirement from writing. Does anyone remember how he, how big of a deal it was? He said, I'm going to retire. I'm going to retire from writing. And this was, I think, 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. The um, world of uh, literary fun time, you know, pop books went, oh my God. He was back in the saddle in like less than a year, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if I remember correctly. The reason I bring this up is because there are those people for whom their life's work and their passion are one and the same. And they, the, the, uh, the ikigai sort of thing, it's like what you're good at, what uh, your love is, and what enriches the world have intersected. You try to stop that, and you're trying to stop who you are. I feel that that's Karen. I really do. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that she did that whole, well, I guess I'm away from this thing, and then just like, so... <laughs> What am I doing next? How about some more of the same? How about continuing to grow other people? How about continuing to expand our horizons of this medium? Because there's there's a love there that she sort of fell into with this first job out of college that she just never gave up on. There's, it's not just that there's a love, too. I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's also the fact that there's not a, there's not just a love there is that the potential of so many millions of people who could have never conceived of the idea of it being a medium that they could care about where they it could care about and clearly 
she was someone who would nurture that and open the scope of that so much wider than it could be. And the sad part, of course, is that like there are people who are saying, no, it'll just it can only just be this that we can monetize in a in a series of movies in this particular way. Like it's the it's the potential spectrum of that, how big the audience could be and and closing that door, mm-hmm. you know. She had this unique ability to, uh, again, talk to the suits and things like that, and then talk to an artist on the standpoint of a person that appreciates literature and appreciates good art, and grab those action figures and go, now kiss! (laughs) And rub them together in a way that created, like, paint-chipping, amazing friction and uh, Hmm. well-loved. Well-loved books, well-loved experiences for people. I can honestly think of no other imprint and no other work in the world of comics that I can confidently say someone when I read this and it blew my freaking mind. Mm. Like they, they can go, Oh, I remember my first Superman book. It was lovely. I paid X amount of money for it. And I read it on my porch with my dad having lemonade. They'll have that warm, fuzzy memory, but there's this strange thing that happens with Vertigo's books and, and at their best where a person goes like, I read it and I was changed. Or I saw something differently, or I started doing things differently, or I regarded an entire medium completely differently. And images stepping in to fill those shoes, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But um, I, I am very excited about the timely announcement uh, of you know Karen trying to do the same thing with Dark Horse 2, because I think what's happening is DC is hoping... That their cinematic universe <laughs> is, sorry, I'll try not to laugh, um, that their cinematic universe by aping some of what Marvel is doing, and, and I do mean aping because we have, you know, editors in chief that are like socially grooming instead of doing their jobs. So I, I think what they're hoping to get from the old Vertigo way of doing things is, or Vertigo, you know, as Joe said, brought in new readers, brought in you know, people who were not comic people. I think DC is under the false impression that because comic books and superheroes have become popular once more and mainstream and and guys with trucker hats are happily wearing, you know, Superman things, that they that they are becoming a huge or returning to a huge part of the cultural consciousness, that they have less work to do with their own characters and their own creations that because we have these images of heroes that as long as we have the image and the idea of what they are, we don't have to write Well, we just have to keep retreading the same track. It's um, I think I actually sent the word to, to you for this bio and I was afraid to end up using it. Um, but it's the McDonaldization of media again. It, mm. It's, it's Disney house style. It's why Disney has not created creative and groundbreaking films for years it's why they've tread the same path it's why they do the same old heroine the same old story um frozen being brilliant because there's two of the same tropes big (laughs) fucking deal it's i think that's what dc's problem is right now is what they're trying to do is they're trying to depend on a storied history of greatness rather than a continued path of innovation and they're going Now that people are paying money for superhero movies, I have a captive audience. I have people that want to eat popcorn and watch people punch each other. We have the two, the world's most famous punchers. 
as as big <laughs> no as big as Marvel has gotten and and no disrespect there. If you ask somebody halfway around the world without a TV or things like that who Batman is, I'm thinking that they would still have a solid chance of knowing who that is. Even if they aren't drowned in as much of a media crazy society as we are. Batman and Superman have transcended just a fictional character. You know, again, they're they're these great images. They're these new gods. They're these, you know, commonly regarded as like known archetypes and truths. DC seems to think that that's all they need to keep people coming to theaters and keep people making things Retread and keep people the old stuff. Don't need to make anything new. Yeah. God, that's fucking depressing. And all they're going to do at that <laughs> point is just be like, oh, the most we're willing to do is to make it darker and grittier and grayer. And uh, what was the Penny Arcade thing about, you know, putting sh- putting some beige on the lens or whatever, <laughs> Vaseline beige, a little bit of uh, lens flare now and again or something to make it look uh, shaky cam exciting. Because realism, apparently, is what people go to comic books for. <laughs> they don't go for escapism. They don't go for excitement. They don't go for fun. And they, they've they effectively divorced the best avenue they have to explore realism in that medium by taking away vertigo. And they're just trying to, like, glue the pieces together and they don't fucking fit. Yeah. You know, people don't like, people don't get into Superman for gritty shit. They want hope. They want the image of who he is. You know, they, they, they like Batman because, again, it, it's wish fulfillment and it's fun. If you make it too boring, too average, too beige, what's, what's the point of the characters? Yeah. You know, I, I, that, that's where I'm at, at least, is if you have someone like Karen who truly championed and truly loved innovation and was able to marry the sides of how do we make money and satisfy creative minds to do what they do best. If you don't have that relationship or that person gunning for you as a creator, why the hell would you go? Seriously. Why would you go to Virgo? Mm. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So. Casey? Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, not going to say the same thing that you guys are going to say. But I mean, mine is so much more pedestrian. My low point is that I grew up reading comics and I worked in a comic book shop and I really never picked up a Vertigo book. I mean, that, the low point is that it took me into my 30s really to have a true appreciation of what, you know, I, I was reading Sandman for the first time for this panel for the oh, very wow. first time Whoa. for this panel and i was i was tearing through it and i was it was like at the issue 30 or something and then i was like i was like i can i can finish this i can finish this and then i got to a point where i'm like no no wait a minute i still have i still have like 40 some 46 issues or something that i can actually savor um, yeah. to get through it. And so I was like, I'm going to, st- I'm going to stop. I'm going to read something else because I know that I'm going to go back to it. And I know this is going to be, I get to experience that thing for the first time. And so my, my own, the only real thing regret that I have is that I, I waited so long to read stuff that was amazing, you know, stuff that was really incredible. Um, I've got a lot of catching up to do, I think. Yeah. I'm yeah. really jealous. You get to experience it <laughs> yeah. for the first time. It's, 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 it's awesome. I mean, from it's incredible. Anyone who has, anyone who hasn't read it, you, it doesn't take the only thing that we only thing that would threw me off a little bit was that at a certain point in time, uh, Morpheus is trying to get back his sort of mask and his 
things that he's he's stripped of and you realize he's weirdly in the same universe as john constantine and the justice league and you're i'm like what the fuck i had no i had no concept i thought they i thought since it was vertigo it was in another place it was just another thing and then I, you got the sense of like oh my god you see batman weirdly in this and you're like but that the connection is very slight you know it's not it's not too not too obtuse um but yeah it's absolutely glorious people people should read it if they haven't it should be the first thing that they buy if they haven't that seems like we're getting on the upswing a little yeah. bit there. Yeah. So let's get yeah. into. Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. I was feeling the depression. Yeah, setting let's pass so the bottle hard. around. Yeah. <laughs> so it's time for high point where we get to go to the top of the mountain. We can pull ourselves out of that nosedive. Maybe have that last minute save before we hit the ground. Joe, give us some happiness. What's your high point? All right. Well, <clears throat> so this this was a lot harder. Uh, well, like most things with me, it was a lot harder until it wasn't. My uh, my high point for Vertigo is Transmetropolitan. No, um, uh, but <laughs> I I'm not going to talk about its superiority or anything because I understand that Transmetro, you know, there Vertigo did so much good stuff that it would be impossible for me to pick a book that I felt was more meaningful or more important culturally or, um, uh. Any 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 kind of more objective thing, Transmetropolitan is an important book to me because it's the book that got me back into comics. There mm. is no view from the gutters without Transmetropolitan. Mm. And it's not just that. It's that my life now happened because I continued to go back to that comic shop where I got Transmet. And I continued to go back there because she gave me Transmet. And through that, I met the woman that is now my wife. Ninety percent of the friends I have now, I like everything, and it wow. is all for me comes back to Transmet, and that book at a time in my life where I was not happy, I was just kind of living this very mundane existence where I didn't have much to look forward to. I fucking devoured that book. Spider Jerusalem was a hero I could relate to. He was a hero that solved things by screaming at them and getting angry. And that was my fucking aesthetic, man. That was me. Like, that that fucking, it was like, you know, you, you have people like, I want to be Superman. I want to be Batman. And like, I never really wanted to do that because I think I understood that it wouldn't be as cracked up as you think it is, right? <laughs> It wouldn't be as great as it was cracked up to be. But Spider-Man, Spider-Jerusalem, that was somebody you could aspire to be because he just used his fucking, his, the sheer force of his intelligence and the fact that he would never, ever stop. He was Jaws in a fucking, in a fucking blazer and slacks, you know? <laughs> and it just, to me, that book is just such a, it's it's a touchstone for me. It's I I you know I don't think any book is perfect. I think Sandman is probably culturally more important. I think Swamp Thing is probably also more culturally important. I think that um, Preacher, as far as the as important to Vertigo, is far more important. But to me, Transmetropolitan is. It's my favorite comic book, hands down. Right, and, I, and I've got a – that was my pick as well. I mean, it's such a bizarre artifact of comic book culture when you consider – there's no shortage of stories about the future of sci-fi, you know, sci-fi stuff. Um, and unlike a lot of its peers in 
Vertigo. I think it's I think it's kind of the quiet hero. I think it's kind of the yes. unsung hero. Um, it's such like a carnival esque mindfuck of future plausible. Like yes, it, it, yes. It, it, I, it's so fascinating. I'm gobsmacked like by how good it is that he can take these weird allusions and homages to the crazy space and culture that we live in in the 21st century and project it forward. Usually, you know, usually when you see a sci-fi future, it's pretty simple. They take a couple different affects and blow them up large so you can have a weird sci-fi concept. Transmet deconstructs everything. It Mm -hmm. deconstructs. It is in this world where... um, all culture, all ideology, politics, and religions are all permutations are ever are present at the same time, and how they can, you can do that in a in a comic book is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And you're right; I didn't think of it until you said it. But yeah, his Spider Jerusalem superpower is righteous indignation. It totally is, and it's is. so good for a character. It's so good for a character. Yeah, he yeah. just I Warren Ellis is able to kind of project this world in which. He he does this masterful magic routine where he's like, "This is the stuff that can be hand waved, so we're we're gonna just hand wave it." Right. This is the important stuff. This right. is what you really need to be looking at. And he manages to tell a story. That fucking that makes me cry, yeah, it's man. Incredible. There are so many moments in that book that just fucking hit me so hard. Yeah, yeah. And none of them feel forced none of them feel emotionally manipulative which is a big fucking Ooh. like you know you know who loves emotionally manipulative jeff johns man he really wants to pull out all the stops to get you to feel bad and it has the opposite effect on me <laughs> but it feels it feels very genuine and at yeah. no point is it so alien that you can't embrace everything that's going on right and yeah for me it just uh, i don't know I, I there are definitely there are probably books that are better. There are probably books that are more literary, but for me, Transmed, yeah. it represents everything that is amazing about Vertigo. I there agree. were two yeah. two standalone issues of Transmetropolitan that I absolutely love, and they're both issues of Spider Jerusalem being a journalist. Mm-hmm. But they have a completely different tone. But I absolutely love them because they do that thing you said, that which is. The first one is him watching television for an entire day yes. <laughs> to the point I think he he screams at people through call-in shows. There's like a TV chef that's like on a ledge because of him <laughs> screaming at her about how to make a milkshake. And he's getting involved in anything to the point that he becomes the news. They're like, oh, my God, you know. Local journalist Spider Jerusalem is is ravaging television, and he's just like, I am become television. <laughs> the he's like, behind him he's just the like, he breaks himself in the process. But yeah, I, I, that's one of the issues I love, and the other one is about the uh, photojournalist from the 20th century, yes, who is cryogenically mm-hmm. frozen and comes out and in a future that just doesn't give a shit about her. That doesn't care about old things, that doesn't care about its history, and takes this woman who lived this incredibly storied, amazing life where she saw all sorts of things, doesn't care about her stories, and then just pushes her into a world where there's advertising everywhere, there are like there are like children's programs that are full of sex and violence, <laughs> and everything is sort of ugly and mean-spirited, and it just sort of breaks her, and Spider is like one of the few people that actually cares about what she has to say about her life. And she's got one of the best moments in that, and I won't spoil the context of the moment, but she is sending Spider some pictures from a phone booth, and uh, martial law has been declared in the city, and a cop's like, ma'am, I'm going to have to ask you to step out, and she turns around, and she fucking gives him the finger, and she says, fuck you, pig. (laughs) And she says it with this huge smile on her face, and it is such a good moment. 
<laughs> and I love that she has that moment at the end because that story is so poignant. For me, um, there is... I don't even think it's an entire episode. It's Spider walking around just kind of being Spider. And he sees this girl with her mother take her... And the mother takes the doll. Or the, she finds the girl and she can't find her mother. And he's like, we'll find her. Like, I'm, I'm not going to let you... I'm, I'm going to take care of you, right? Like, I'm not going to give up on you. We're going to find your mom. And they find her. And then he notices that they've had to pawn her doll. And he goes in and he buys her a doll. And there's not a whole lot of dialogue there. It's just this moment of him being a human being. Mm. And so few things are written that well now. It just, it makes me want to weep. Yeah. Like, nothing, I, I have read literally nothing from Marvel or DC in the last probably three to four years that made me feel anything close to just these five pages. Mm. And if you want to see a really angry person use words to bring down a peril for horrible person, yes. this is, I mean, especially, I'm not, I'm not going to say, but just in case, if there's something orange that's making you blue... Um, this would be the time to read Transmigrant Politics. If maybe something about uh, current are we, events. Are you talking like, about Oompa Loompas? Uh, <laughs> uh, close relative. If you want to see the press fight against uh, I, like a, a powerful figurehead that maybe believes in nothing but his own aggrandizement, <laughs> Transmetropolitan might be the book to you. I'm not making any parallels to the that, real world. That little rant that he does, I think it's just a single page rant that he has about politicians trying to fuck you with knives and that's why it's important you vote. It comes up every election time. Mm. And it's just as good every single yes, time. Yes, absolutely. Trying to fuck you with knives. <laughs> yes, yes. So, Kit, high point. Oh, so, um, uh, again, it's, I feel like I dovetail too much with Joe. Um, I hate agreeing with him on so many things. Uh, it's so uncomfortable. We'll fix it in post. It's almost oh, as if we're God. really close friends yeah, and make, that we bonded. Make me sound really, really mad at him as <laughs> best you can. Um, you know, it's... I have to make comments as far as the life-changing nature of reading these books. Um, for me, specific high points that changed my life um, were reading Enigma, um, which thankfully got reprinted because it it's definitely talking about things that are quiet that don't get enough love. Like, I, I'll walk you guys up and down the street someday, but like, you know, Scarab was a fantastic book i ended up getting it to joe and it was like overall too soon um but there are particularly things like shade the changing man um stuff like uh like enigma of course reading sandman um house of secrets uh it's really fun for me because it it presses that twilight zone loving button that i've had ever since (laughs) i was a kid um i have a huge degree of respect for peter milligan um, Duncan Figredo is the reason, well, Duncan Figredo and, um, and, uh, Dave McKean, uh, are the reasons that I am a painter, um, and that I, I'm into collage art and these other things because, uh, Dave's work was like the first time that I saw somebody using art that matched the inside of my head. Oh, wow. wow. That loving so many different things, having interest in so many things and never really being particularly excellent at one thing, um, but having interest in all these little parts of the world as a whole and a magpie's eye um, as a human being. His work was one of the first things that really resonated with me. The, the idea that all these things that are just sort of, they feel disparate, they have a harmony. So um, influenced hugely as an artist by vertigo um 
discovering my identity as a human being. It's vertigo was massively influential in that. Joe talks about having a wife from this. Hmm. I talk about realizing that I'm a queer person because of Enigma or reading about Foxglove and reading about, uh, or reading Game of You, reading about Barbie um, and having grown up in a conservative home. And it was comic books that made me consider other people. It was It was these comic books that took me from being raised as a Southern Baptist conservative Christian who thought they had the world figured out in black and white to these beautiful and critical shades of gray that it created empathy in me as a person that I did not have. So it actually improved me as a human being, which is really bizarre. Um, I, especially when you're sure that you have nowhere to go, you know, beyond that point that you're already the best thing you can possibly be. Um, but I, I became aware of the struggles of other people because of all these disparate stories in Sandman. Um, I became aware of my queerness as a person because of uh, the idea of identity and experience being knit together in Enigma. Um, Preacher was the first time I could confront my feelings of anger about being raised in a religious household that just squashed individual identity and feelings. Um, So Preacher is a really special book for me because I... It was also the first time I could get dirty, like mm. really and truly dirty, mm. like coming a little bit off of the uh, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac train when I was young. It was a natural seg to start reading uh, Preacher and starting to see the hypocrisy of things. And instead of just getting angry about that hypocrisy, looking at it and going, I can do this differently. I don't have to follow the rules that I was raised with to make the world a better place, to be a good person. Um to be somebody that at one point was a missionary in their life, wanting to save the world in that way, turning to my new religion, which is my job, being a librarian, like taking stories as gospel to get other people to change themselves by seeing someone else. And now there is nothing I love more than being able to hand one of those books or having someone go, I want to read comics and being able to go, read this, it changed my life. Read this, it made me think about an experience that wasn't mine. It made me reevaluate how the world works. Um, And I know we chuckle about Grant Morrison, but getting down and fucking cosmic, you know? (laughs) Some of that that part of me that always had this secret love for, like, psychedelic 60s rock as Mm. a little kiddo, like the lie on the carpet and go, whoa, situation. Um, Reading Kid Eternity, you know, as a young adult and just going, wow. Everything, everything is bigger and more complicated than I thought it was, and that doesn't scare me. That makes me feel more engaged in the world and more empowered and more brave as a human being. That's so incredible. Yeah, <laughs> that's so incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's literally comic books. It's that's the especially weirdest part. for the medium that for a medium that parents older older people would just dismiss entirely mm-hmm. not art the idea that this is not just disposable art. kids garbage oh god but that's it, awesome. it can be all of these things yeah. and that's that's what i really love too and i kind of bouncing a little bit off what you're saying kit too for my high point which is that i know i'm kind of in the opposite position of you joe where i don't have a lot of comic book friends 
doing a podcast has made me more comic book friends yes. than I had before. Podcast, the new comics. Yes. It is. Yes. Uh. But it's like, I have a lot of nerdy friends, but I don't have a lot of comic book friends. I, I'm used to being the only comic book friend. So with that, my high point is Why the Last Man by Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra. Wow. Okay. Because I want to make more comic book people. I think that the goal of comic books should be making more comic books and more comic book people. And when you make more comic book people, those people make comic books. Yeah. And by making comic books just this narrow thing aimed at a narrow slide of people, you make worse comic books. And you make only one kind of comic book. And you are, you know, take... All of the really powerful arguments about representation and everything out the window, and I'm just going to make it about fucking greed. When you throw people out of the tent, you are taking shit away from me that I really like. You are taking potential awesome comics and making them not exist. That every time there is a book out there that makes somebody go, wow, like you said, Kit, this is incredible and that changed my life. There's a portion of that crowd that will go on to make these comics themselves. And who knows what kind of great comics were shot down because of that Dan DiDio bullshit. Mm -hmm. And the reason why The Last Man is my number one uh, choice for High Point is that it has never been easier to make new comic book fans than with this title. That I, I always kind of have this like Word document in my brain of every person I meet who's not a comic book person. And I try to figure out what it is they like. Like, I'm profiling their taste. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, what TV shows do they like? What kind of stuff do they have? What kind of sense of humor do they have? How do they talk about stuff? And I'm, like, doing this, like, matchmaking. I'm, like, shipping them with a comic. Yes. <laughs> and, yes, that's my entire job. Uh, that is, like, <laughs> this is, I think, a comic book geek thing is... And, and so, I'm sorry to interrupt, but one of the things that is we used to say on View from the Gutters is that everybody should fucking read comic books. And I feel like one of the prerequisites for being like, or one of the things that we love to do as comic book geeks is think, all right, how can I fucking get you in here? Yeah. <laughs> yep. How can I find out what you want to taste of and give I'll you be that your taste? Candy yeah, man. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a pusher. You are. You yeah. are. Yeah. That's yes, exactly God, what yes. you are. Because when you're the only person in a social circle who's really into this, you are the deal. You are the person that's like their main venue for getting this stuff because comic books are really terrible about advertising themselves. They advertise themselves in comic books. Yes. <laughs> so unless I tell somebody about Kill or Be Killed by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, you need to read it right away. Uh, you're not going to hear about it anywhere. You're not going to hear how awesome this thing is. And I again, I make that taste profile and I go, oh, this person really likes Tim Burton-y stuff. They like this. How do I get them into a Sandman? Yeah, it's like, right. you know, how do I get you into fables? How do I get you into the unwritten? Uh, and I also have things like, oh, this person really likes Breaking Bad. Maybe I can get them to try out uh, Scalped or, yeah. you know, something. Oh, they really like The Wire. You know, it's like there's all these things I'm just trying to sort of figure out. And why The Last Man makes it so fucking evangelical to be a comic book is when it's not easy to attach a certain comic book to them. Why The Last Man works for fucking everybody. It's just a simple story. It's a story of a 20-something-year-old escape artist who is the lone survivor of a curse or a plague or a virus. It doesn't fucking matter. That kills all men on Earth at the same time. So there's like three million bodies dropped dead. Three billion bodies dropped dead. A lot of corpses here. 
take that, Sam Peckinpah. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. Oh. Ouch. We kill way more people. It doesn't matter how much. Oh, but yeah, take that, Zack Snyder. Um, <laughs> but yeah, all these people drop dead, and now suddenly the mm. world is populated by women and one 20 something year old dude and his pet monkey. <laughs> and it's just a, it's a road trip story about him having to go cross country with a geneticist and a, se- a secret agent to get to the geneticist's lab to hopefully save the human race. It's that simple. And it also avoids all of the super obvious tropes that you're thinking about right now that might make you not want to try this book. It's so fucking good. And I can hand it to almost anybody. And again, my goal, make more comic book people. And this is the perfect tool because it works for everybody. And once they like that, I can get them to try something a little bit weirder and a little bit weirder. And... Because that's my philosophy. It's not trying to convince people to like superheroes if they don't want to like superheroes. Because I always have those two piles of comic books that float in my head. And if something comes out, I throw it into one of those piles. There's uh, a pile of stuff for people like me who are hardcore lifers who have been reading this shit forever. And then there's stuff for the normies. (laughs) And Vertigo made stuff for the fucking normies that would make them want to try something. For somebody who doesn't give a shit about Batman or Green Lantern. Who wants to try something different? Who wants to try something thought-provoking? I mean, Sandman, again, we're talking about identity. Sandman was the first comic book that made me understand that transgender people exist. And this is a comic written in the early 90s. I mean, this is stuff, they're they're dealing with issues and stuff that most fiction wasn't trying. But again, the beauty of being the weird little disposable, uh, you know, entertainment medium that no one gives a shit about is the freedom to try almost anything. Because there's no big money people in comics. The only big money people care about what they can try to squeeze a movie out of. But everywhere else you have the fucking freedom to do whatever you want. And Vertigo in its heyday was all about that. That wonderful little bubble where everything wasn't stupid. and you can say hey this right here is why i like comic books person who doesn't care about batman and wants to look down there knows at me yeah you can like comic books too because it's not this tiny thing you think it is it's this huge thing it's this limitless thing and you can fucking share in it too and still hate batman (laughs) So with that, I just want to thank you guys for joining us today. Yeah. Uh, again, Joe thank Preddy you. from View from the Gutters. Yep. Good to I have like, you. I like that we went full circus. We started we started with me talking about a guy named Yorick getting me into Vertigo, and <laughs> yes. we ended with a guy named Yorick. Oh, yes. Getting people into Vertigo. Getting yeah. people into Vertigo. Nice. And Kit Forge, thank you so much for joining us for the first time. It was wonderful to be here. Good thank to you. have you. Mr. Casey Doran. Thank you, Mike. It was enlightening. And we will catch you guys in a couple months. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
When we first started Vertigo 15 years ago, we were publishing, at the time, Mature Readers Comics under the DC Comics banner. We had published about 10 different series from the late 1980s, and six of those series were ongoing monthly titles. Our readers loved those titles, and they really loved the fact that what we were doing at Vertigo was really shaking up the status quo. Readers wanted to see more material like this. Writers and artists wanted to create more material like this. So we said, hey, why don't we just go for it and create a separate line? Even though Vertigo began as kind of quirky, avant-garde takes on old DC characters or really supernatural or horror DC characters. We've never really done superhero characters. You know, my plan was to make Vertigo a home for writers and artists to really express their creativity, to really stretch the envelope of comics, to really show that comics as a form of literature can really be reckoned with in terms of contemporary fiction and art. And, you know, I'd like to say I think we've succeeded.